welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Avila, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gion. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. So glad you guys are here with us this morning, and uh, it's a huge blessing to talk about this topic of marriage. Uh, it's, it's always exciting for me. We're in a series called uh, Reunited. Let's pray before we get started. Father, we just want to come before you thankful, so stirred by that last song, um, that if we ever need reminding, we can just look at the empty tomb, and that that power is at work within us. is just such a beautiful thing. It's so true. And so we pray, Lord, that you would work through us powerfully. We thank you, actually, for this time that you have us in. This is a time of historic disruption, Lord. And I know that you have us here for a purpose. I know that you have this for a purpose to arrest us and arrest the ones around us, that we would examine our lives, that we would ask deep questions about what are we living for? 
What do we love? What do we turn to for happiness, Lord? And then seeing that you are the source of all everlasting joy in coming to you. It's a, it's a time, Lord, when we know that hearts are being revealed and exposed. We're seeing in ourselves and in others what our true treasures are. We know, Lord, that this has been a time both of people streaming to you and people falling away from you. Lord, with sadness, we know that many are falling away from the faith during this time. And Lord, we just, um, we thank you even for that, that we could have our hearts exposed before the great day of judgment, that we could know where we actually stand. And Lord, I just pray for all those who are listening right now, whether at home or whether they're here with us, I just pray, Lord, that that we would really assess where we're at and that we would really get real with you. And if there's some area of repentance and change that's needed, that we would just turn to you to find our joy in you, to find life in you. We pray, Lord, that during this time that you would keep us faithful to you. Don't let our hearts grow cold and hard and callous and dead to you. Father, we ask that you would make this time fruitful in our lives. We pray that you would... Help us to not waste this once-in-a-generation opportunity to declare your goodness in the midst of a pandemic, Lord. We pray that you would help us to use our time to reach out to our neighbors and to reach out to coworkers and friends and those who are far from you. Lord, show us how to do that. Show us how to do that in this difficult time that we would push against it, that we would do what's needed, Lord, to be your people in the world. We pray, Lord, as we open this word, we pray that you would open our hearts We pray that you'd open our minds. We pray that you would revive us as we receive your word, that our drought-parched souls would be rained upon by your spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people say, amen. So we're in a series on relationships. A series is called Reunited. We looked at friendship. We looked at uh, relationships at work. Uh, We looked at relationships of parenting and all sorts of relationship things. This morning, we're going to look at the relationship of marriage. And you might, if you're not, if you're new to church and this is something that's new to you, you might think like, why would we turn to the book of Genesis to learn about 21st century marriages? I mean, this is a book that's 3,500 years old, roughly. Why would we turn to Genesis for that? And the answer for that, and I think it's a great question, if you're new to church, that's a really reasonable question for you to ask us. And our answer would be that this is where Jesus turned. When Jesus was asked questions about marriage and divorce and all sorts of things related to marriage, he consistently brought them to Genesis 2. And guess what? It was an old book then. Okay, it was like 1,500 years old then. So it was an old book then, and, and Jesus saw this book as foundational. This was the place to go. And so we as followers of Jesus believe him, and we're going to go and we're going to open that up. And guys, this is a part of what we call a creation account. And creation accounts are important. Creation accounts aren't just to, for a culture to say where they came from. Creation accounts are meant to show us why we're here. So not just where we came from, but why we're here. And um, the Bible has a creation account. Difference between its creation account and every other one is that this creation account is 100% true. Okay, But one of the things that all creation accounts have had in common is they don't just tell you where you came from. They tell you why you're here. There's one exception. Our culture's creation account. Our secular creation account tells us where we came from, but doesn't tell us why we're here. That's a massive omission. That's something you should expect. (laughs) If you're given a story for where you came from, but not why you're here, you're seriously impoverished about how to live. And um, and what we see in here is a story of where we came from and why we're here. 
Let me read to you the words of a Harvard uh, biology professor, Stephen Jay Gould, brilliant man. He's passed away. But he said this about the meaning that you can get from the secular creation story. And this is the meaning you get. We are here because an odd group of fish had a peculiar fin anatomy that could transform into legs for terrestrial creatures. We are here because the earth never froze entirely during an ice age. We're here because a small and tenacious species arriving in Africa about a quarter of a million years ago has managed so far to survive by hook and by crook. We may yearn for a higher answer, but none exists. That's what you have. If, if you don't take Genesis, that's what you have. There's no higher meaning. Now, you are free to pretend you have a meaning. You're free to pretend you have a purpose. But realize that that purpose is pretend, <laughs> okay? Unless you believe that God created you and you see the purpose coming from that, you are merely making up a purpose for your life, okay? And a lot of times we don't realize. I think that's something that we need to reckon with. Genesis has a better answer. It says you were created for God to know him, to enjoy him, to glorify him. And what's interesting about marriage in the scripture, and what you might find surprising, is that marriage is mainly about God, not about us. We didn't come up with marriage. Uh, marriage is not about us, ultimately. It's about God. God created marriage to reflect, to say something about himself. In fact, the entire world, guys, was created to say something about God. You just realize that? Everything. The universe, its entire history, all of reality is actually about God. Calvin, in his Institutes, John Calvin, he said that the world is like a glorious theater. Everywhere it dazzles with the beauty and wisdom and power and goodness and glory of God. That's what the world is. And he said, but most people are in this glorious theater with a blindfold on, and they don't see any of it. They're blinded to it, Right? And he said that the brightest manifestation of divine glory finds not even one genuine spectator in a hundred. What's your experience? What's your experience that are online with us? Do you see this world as a glorious theater constantly showing the beauty of God? Or have you lived your whole life blinded to what the whole world's about? And if you've lived blinded, I would just ask you to receive this morning's message as a gift of sight from God. God is giving you, at least temporarily, a view of why you're here and why the universe exists. And I would just say, don't walk away from that. That's what we're going to look at this morning. The whole universe is a story that points to God. And we can summarize the story of the universe, and we talked about this before, as creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So the whole story of the universe is in four acts. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. We can just leave that up because what I'm going to do this morning is we're going to look at marriage in those four categories. These are great four categories to understand everything. You could do work this way. You could do speech this way. You could do friendship this way. And we have, by the way. I don't know if you've noticed. But we're going to look through this. So we're going to look at marriage as God's good gift, creation. We're going to look at the mess we've made of marriage, the fall. We're going to look at the difference Jesus makes in marriage, redemption. And then we're going to look at what will we have to show for our marriages in the end, restoration. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. First, let's look in Genesis 2 at the gift that God has given us in marriage. God has given us a gift of friendship. Look at verse 18, Genesis 22. The Lord, said to, the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. We saw in this series that human beings were made with a need for human companionship. Not necessarily marriage, but a need for friendship, a need for companionship. And we saw that God made us that way 
so that we would reflect who he is. Because God is triune, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, eternally existing in a relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so he made us with a need for friendship so that we'd reflect him in that way. And God's designed marriage to be the most intimate of friendships. Take a look at Song of Solomon 5, 16. It says this. This is the, the, the wife speaking. She says, His mouth is most sweet, speaking of her husband. He is altogether desirable. This is my beloved. This is my friend. Right? It's about friendship. Marriage is about friendship. In Malachi, when God confronts these men that have, uh, are abandoning their wives, he says this in Malachi 2.14. It says, The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you've been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. What's really interesting about the Old Testament, you think really old book, probably low view of women, not true at all. Marriage is about ultimately, or, or mostly about friendship, right? It's companionship. And what a, what a wonderful way, guys, for you to gauge the status of your marriage. Those of you who are married this morning, think about it this way. Are you treating your spouse as your very best friend? And for some of you, that's going to be really convicting, and it's, but it's also going to give you some application. What would it take for you to, to live that way, to treat your spouse as your very best friend? So marriage is a gift of friendship. Marriage is a gift of help. Take a look again at Genesis 2.18. It says, Then the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. This is interesting, right? Fit for him. It means that God has designed marriage to be the union of two very different people, but that fit together like puzzle pieces. He's made us differently. He's made men and women differently to fit together like puzzle pieces. Not just physically different, but emotionally different, mentally different, psychologically different, spiritually different. And I won't go into kind of, you know, I've seen some marriage curriculum where it's like, it's very stereotypical. Oh, men are like this, they don't want to talk. And women are like this, they want to talk all the time. Well, if that's true, then I'm, I'm the chick in our marriage, is I'm the one that needs to talk. You know, we go for a walk, he just needs to be heard, you know, like, and I'm like, the whole time, right? But with any combination that God's put together, he's made us complementary, maybe not stereotypically complementary. Um, you see it in married couples where one's the saver and one's the spender, meaning the other one's fun, right? Or one's an extrovert and the other one's an introvert. Or one plays it safe and the other one likes to take risks. Or one is very diplomatic, one is very blunt. This is a nice way of putting it, right? What's going on here? God is putting together complementary people, helper fit for them. Um, Tasha and I, my wife, we're actually the same Myers-Briggs personality, so it's I-S-F-J, but there's a difference. Mine, on my personality test, it puts an extra letter on the end, which is T, which means turbulent, okay? <laughs> turbulent, and I am turbulent, and she's so helpful because she's not turbulent. God has made you and your spouse different but complementary, and you know what's interesting is, in the beginning, that's attractive, Right? Oh, this person's different than me. This is so attractive. Oh, he's so outgoing. He's so, you know, whatever it is, it's attractive. And then what? And then it's frustrating. But when it's frustrating, we have to remember Genesis 2.18, that that is God's helper fit for you to accomplish his good purposes in your life. So marriage is a gift of friendship, gift of help. It's a gift of oneness. Take a look at verse 19. There's a beautiful account of how God creates the woman here. He says this, now out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. 
So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. The rib that the Lord God had taken out of the man, he, brought, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. You can see the oneness here that God has in mind in marriage in the way that he created Eve. So he takes one person, turns them into two persons, to bring them back into a relationship of unity. It's super artsy, isn't it? God is so artistic in the way he does things. The fourth century preacher, John Christostom, he said this about the creation of Eve, and it's beautiful. He said this, Let us remember that God did not take the woman from the man's feet to be trampled upon or enslaved by him, nor from his head that she should dominate him, but from his side to be his companion, from beneath his arm to receive his protection, from near his heart to have his love and affection. Whoa. Okay. They called this guy Golden Mouth. Okay, and that's why. The fourth century, right? Amazing. God has made you and your spouse to come together and to live one flesh, one life together. And, 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 and the reason for this is, once again, it's about God, right? God wants to show something about himself, that God is three persons, one God, that he, he is um, a oneness in the Trinity, one together. And he wants to show that by making two people, you and your spouse, living together in a unified life together reflects the beauty of the relationship in the Trinity. Isn't that amazing? And that one flesh relationship, guys, is, it's called a one flesh relationship because it's of its permanence, because it's a covenant, it's a lifelong promise. Um, a, a covenant, guys, is a, is a Bible word, and it means a legal promise that establishes a relationship. And so marriage is a covenant. It's a promise of permanence. It's a, it, and a covenant relationship, guys, is different than a consumer relationship. And I think this is where we get into a lot of trouble, us in our marriages, and certainly the culture at large, is that marriage is a covenant relationship, not a consumer relationship. A consumer relationship works like this. I'm all in as long as you meet my needs. Isn't that what customers do? I mean, you have some loyal customers. They'll stick with you even if you're really terrible at your job, but not forever, right? At some point, it's like, you're not giving me what I want. I'm moving on. That's fine. That's reasonable. That's a consumer relationship. A covenant relationship, guys, is different. It says, I'm all in even when you don't meet my needs, and it costs me everything. And no customer does that, (laughs) right? And if you think about our culture, our culture encourages a consumer relationship, not a covenant relationship. A covenant relationship is I serve you. A consumer relationship is you serve me. And in marriage, we, we make this covenant promise. We say, I belong to you permanently, exclusively, and completely. I will never leave you or forsake you. I've seen all your flaws. I've seen you're crazy. And no matter what happens, I'm not going anywhere. Like, that's what the covenant promise is. Now, of course, there are two grounds for divorce in Scripture. There's adultery. um, There's abandonment. There are reasons for marriages to end. But most of the time, what it's about is it's about a consumerism, right? Right? And we own that. You guys that have thought about divorce, and most couples have at some point. You have this thought. What was it? It was a consumeristic way of thinking instead of a covenantal way of thinking. If you guys have any questions about divorce and legitimacy of divorce, please come to me. I, I can unpack that more.
Because you're one flesh, your relationship with your spouse is the most important relationship in your life. It's actually, and this is controversial, more important than your relationship with your kids. Okay? Take a look at Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So that relationship between a husband and wife is the most important relationship you have. The best thing you can do, parents, for your kids is to love your spouse more than you love anyone else on the planet. That's the best thing you can do for them. More than showering more additional love on them would be to love your spouse. That's the most important thing you can do. Uh, That one flesh relationship is not only the most important, it's the most intimate. That's what Genesis 2.25 is about. It says, the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Okay, your spouse should have the most intimacy with you of any person in the world. They should know the most about your emotions, your thoughts, your desires, and your plans. How do I know this? This is the one person you're naked with regularly. If you're physically naked with this person, you should actually be emotionally, spiritually naked to them. You should, they should know what you're thinking. They should know what you're about. I love Marilyn Robinson. She's got several books. Gilead's amazing book. And then there's Lila. Lila's a really cool book. And, and there, there's a quote in there that I love. This, this girl, Lila, she's trying to figure out what marriage is. And this is what it says. Lila had no particular notion what the word married meant, except that there was an endless, pleasant joke between them that excluded everyone else and all the rest of them were welcome to admire. Isn't that cool? <laughs> I don't know what marriage is, but it's like they have this pleasant joke between them that excludes all others, and all others are welcome to admire. And so, guys, you guys that are married have been given an amazing gift. What should we do with that gift? You should do like Adam, celebrate it. He says, this at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She's, we don't even know he waited that long, okay? And he's, he's just celebrating it. We should also guard it and cultivate it, which Adam obviously failed to do. So that's the gift of marriage. Let's look secondly at the mess we've made of marriage. So this is the fall, right? Unfortunately, Adam did not guard the garden as he was called to do. Guarding the garden was his job, okay? Not her job, it was his job. Even before Eve was created, Adam was given two roles. You see it in Genesis 2, 15. The Lord told him to work and keep the garden, and the, the Lord told him what his commands were, right? He said, you, know, you need of any of these trees, just not that one. There were two things that the man got there. He got the word, and he got work. Or to put it this way, he got a Bible and a shovel, okay? And for you boys and for you men, that's your role in life. You, your role is a Bible and a shovel. You need to have your shovel, which means you work, you provide, you take care of things, you, you strive against all the difficulties to, to provide for your family, and so you have a shovel and you have a Bible, which means that you know how to lead spiritually, that you've actually spent the time in this word to hear from God so that you can lead your family. And that's what Adam was called to do. He's called to have a Bible and a shovel. And you can tell that God called Adam to protect the garden because what happens when they sin? Who does God come to? He comes to Adam, Right? When he says, where are you? That you is singular. And we know who he's talking to because Adam responds. It wasn't a, hey, y'all, where are you? It was a, hey, where are you, Adam? And I think this morning is a great time for us men to hear that from God. Where are you? Where have you been? Right? Because, guys, when, one day when Christ returns, he's going to ask every one of us husbands, where are you? Where were you when the serpent was speaking lies into your garden that I gave you to guard and to keep? And you can't say, well, I kind of put her in charge of it. Or, you know, I kind of thought the church would take care of it. 
Or I thought, you know, our friends would take care of it. It's like, where are you? So this morning, as we talk about marriage, I specifically want to speak to you men, is because God's going to call you singularly and say, where are you? Where were you? Tell me about how you managed that family. And so it'd be great to answer his call now <laughs> and not later. Um, Adam failed to, to keep the serpent out. And if we're honest, we've all failed to keep the serpent out, right? Haven't we? That's the mess we've made. We've kind of repeated this. Serpent comes, certain speaks lies, we tolerate it, we let it grow. Adam led his family to believe the lies of the serpent and rebel against God. And the consequences, guys, were devastating. They were devastating to them. They were kicked out of Eden. They're devastating to us as we've inherited that sin. Um, sin separates us from each other. Sin separates husbands and wives. And we can see that in Genesis 3. And we see that in a few ways. Um, sin brought burdens. Sin brought new burdens. Take a look at Genesis 3.17. This is after they've sinned against God and fallen away. God gives these curses. And he says this to Adam, because you listen to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Toil and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken for you are dust, and to dust you will return. There's a new burden, right? His work before was enjoyable. It, it, things worked when he put them together. Now it's difficult, it's sweaty, it's thorns, it's thistles. There's a burden that's put on him. Eve gets a burden too. Look at verse 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbirth, and in pain you shall bring forth children. Uh, that pain of childbirth, which many of you are very familiar with. There's other pains that, the pain doesn't end there either for a mother, Right? There's the pains of sleepless nights with babies. There's the pain of frustrating caring for young kids when they're being crazy. There's worrying about them the whole time as they're growing. There's, there's heartache over prodigal kids, right? You think about St. Augustine, think about his mom, Monica, and how she you know, was just burdened by her boy like her whole life until he came to the Lord. Like There's a burden there. Bringing forth children is, is, is difficult. There's a, there's a pain there. And one thing we know about people is when they're burdened, what do they look for? They look for somebody to blame, right? And that's what we see in Genesis uh, 3.12. We see the man saying, the woman you gave me, you know, it's her fault. You know, and this, this replays in all of our marriages that we're, we look for somebody to blame for the burdens of work and home and all the things that we're dealing with. And the most convenient person to blame is the person right next to you, right? It's her. <laughs> it's him. He's why I'm not happy, you know? Whose fault is it that life is hard? Well, you know, he isn't helping me with the kids. He doesn't help me around the house enough. Or she doesn't appreciate how hard I work. Or, you know, he won't provide me the things that I feel like I really need. Or, you know, she doesn't really take care of the home the way I expect her to, right? His blaming. So his burdens. You guys are burdened, right? Is a burden? And then we blame each other. And this explains a lot of the conflicts in the evening, right? These two burdened souls come together with all the difficulties sins brought into the world, and then what? Attack each other. You know, that's what we do, right? And we see that right here in Genesis. We see battles. Look at verse 16. You're, he says to Eve, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. And so we've got this fight, right? Adam and Eve are banished from the garden. They're kicked out of the presence of God. God is the source of all joy and happiness. And so here they are, east of Eden, outside the garden, and, and they're looking for happiness. So where, where do they choose to find it? By fighting each other. You know, he's not giving it to me. She's not making me happy. Guys, the cry, you're not giving me what I need to be happy, comes from a heart that doesn't know where to find happiness. 
right? If you're going to try and like just bang it out of your spouse, beat your spouse up to get it, not physically, I mean, but like emotionally, you're just going to like constantly be fighting to get happiness from this other person. It shows that we haven't found where happiness comes from, right? We battle each other because we, we're seeking something from each other that only God can give, right? So Genesis 3 shows us how sin attacks our oneness, like that sin separates us from God, and then sin attempts to separate us from each other. And that's the story of the fall. But Jesus reunites both, right? Jesus reunites us to God and to each other. So let's look at the third one, which is redemption, the difference Jesus makes. Because Jesus comes in, and he gives us a new pattern for marriage, new power for marriage, and a new purpose for marriage. And it's refreshing after we just talked about all that. You're like, yeah, I know what that's like. I know, I know what burdens and blaming and battles are like. Well, what about the new pattern? You know, we've all tried to follow Adam and Eve's pattern in our marriage. We tried it this week, again, you know, like definition of insanity. Like, let's, let's follow Adam and Eve again. Let's do what they did again, right? We've all inherited these kind of warped ways of dealing with things family-wise, generation to generation, all the way from Adam and Eve down to us. And, but the cool thing is, guys, is that this word redemption, like, First Peter says, that in Christ you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Isn't that cool when you think of marriage? You've been ransomed by the blood of Jesus from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, and you've been given a new pattern for marriage. You have a new marriage to imitate. And all of us look up to certain people's marriages, you know, and we go like, oh, I wish ours was like that, and you want to imitate this person. We all have a marriage that we can imitate, and it's a marriage that even if you're not married, you're a part of. And it's the marriage of Christ and the church. Take a look at Ephesians. You really should turn here because I could tell you crazy things and you wouldn't know any better. Ephesians 5, 23 says this. Go ahead and turn there. Um, It says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their own husbands. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Because we're members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So that's the one marriage that we can all look up to, and we can all imitate, right? We can all look up to, and we can all imitate. And when we imitate, what do we do? Husbands. We imitate Christ's sacrificial leading. Okay, that's what it says. We imitate Christ's sacrificial leadings. That's what we do, husbands. It's a call to die. Okay? You might be like, hey, this marriage isn't really working for me. Not really, you know, scratching my back the way I want it to be scratched. Ephesians 5 says about dying. So, you don't look crucified yet? You're fine. Okay? Right? It's a call to have, to it's a, it's a call to die to having your own way so that God can have his way in your family. A lot of people look at Ephesians 5 and they think, oh, this makes a husband the king of the house and gets whatever he wants. That's not what the text says. 
The text says that the husbands die to their own way so that God gets his way in the family. Husbands, your model to follow in your marriage is a crucified man dying for his bride. So when you get to that point where you say, like, this is hard, just remember, that's the pattern. You know, that's the pattern. It's very countercultural, right? Wives, you imitate the calling of the church to follow your husband's lead by submitting to your husband as the church submits to Christ. What does that look like? Verse 33 calls it respecting him, right? Wives, your husband should know that you're thankful that God gave him to you to lead your family. That's a refreshing thing for a guy to realize, that his wife is thankful that God gave him to her to lead the family. Wives, your husband should know that you esteem him, that you pray for him, that you believe that God will lead you through him, that you, that you want him to be the best possible leader that he can be. And that's a new pattern, guys. That's a new pattern for us to imitate. And whether you were raised with an example of a, of a healthy marriage or not, this is the marriage, right, that we look to to imitate. It's Christ and the church. And this is a marriage, guys, and I'm aware some of you guys are single, and um, this is a marriage you're already a part of. And married people, this is a marriage you're already a part of. You already have this relationship with Christ and the church. You, you are in this relationship. It's a greater marriage that we can all draw from. And so there's a new pattern. There's also, guys, a new power. And I don't know if you guys noticed it in the text. It'd be easy to miss, but take a look at verse 23, or 28. It says, in, look for the new power. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Do you guys see what he did there? So we were talking about this oneness from Genesis 2.24. What does Paul say Genesis 2.24 is actually about? He says it's, it's a profound mystery, but it's what? It's about Christ and the church. So Paul goes like, yeah, it's about marriage, but really it's about Christ and the church. We would never have gotten that by reading it, right? But he says, actually, it's about Christ and the church. How do we make sense of this? Marriage was created to illustrate the gospel, right? Not the other way around. So it wasn't like, you know, God wasn't really sure what would happen and created people and they fell and then he like had to come up with a solution to save them and so he did that and then he, then he went like, how can I explain what I did? He's like, oh, there's that marriage thing. That really fits. Yeah, that'd be good. Let's do that. Write that down. You know, no. He had in his mind the gospel even before the fall and he created marriage to illustrate the gospel. That's what this is saying. This is saying that was first in his mind. So your marriage is an illustration of the gospel. And he's saying that that oneness that's in Genesis 2.24 is a oneness between you and Jesus. That oneness, that, that being one flesh, that is the relationship that you, that we as a church have with Jesus. You're one flesh with him. Marriage is a picture to show that reality. And look at, look at 29 again. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ is a church, because we are members of his body. That's talking about union with Christ. And then you guys have heard me talk about union with Christ before. I'm convinced that almost no one is excited about union with Christ like they should be. And maybe I just say it a hundred more times and eventually, and you know what's probably going to happen is you're going to read a book on union with Christ in a year and you're going to be like, I never knew this. You know, why didn't she preach this? And it's like, well, whatever, you know, that's just the way it goes. 
I hope you're listening right now because when you came to faith in Christ, when you turned from your sin, you're united and, and, and trusted in Christ, you were united with Christ legally. You have that covenant relationship that I talked about where he will never leave you or forsake you. He knows all your crazy, all your sin, and he's not going anywhere. Like you have that union with Christ. And not only that, you're united with his life. You know, Jesus talked about vine and, and branch, and you're united with him. You draw your life from him. He says that he thinks of you the way you think of your arm, which solves a lot of problems. Like, can a true believer lose their salvation? It's like, well, does Jesus lose his arms? No. Like, you're permanently bonded to him. He loves and he cares for you the way a person cares for their body. And he says here that he nourishes and cherishes you. And I was just asked this morning, do you feel, because you should not only know, but you should feel that Jesus nourishes and cherishes you. He cherishes you. He nourishes you. And so as we live out this pattern we've been given in marriage, you know, I talked about husbands, like, if it doesn't look like a crucifixion yet, you're not even there yet, right? And I'm giving you a really hard pattern. The way we get the power is through union with Christ, that we actually experience him nourishing and cherishing us as we lead our families, that we actually experience Christ nourishing and cherishing us, wives, as you follow your husband in difficult ways. Are you experiencing that? You can experience that. And I think one thing I'm kind of sensing as I'm talking to people is that, you know, we've let a lot of our time with the Lord slip during this time. You know, there's a lot more screen time, a lot less Bible time. And I just say, guys, you can get feel nourished and cherished anytime. All you have to do is find an undistracting place, open this book, and pray that you would experience his nourishing and cherishing. And it works. I swear it works. Okay? And you might be like, well, you don't understand. I got little kids. I don't have time. Use some of the time you use staring at your screens. How many hours of that you got? So you could put the Bible on the screen. You could put an earbud in. And you could experience the nourishing and cherishing of God, right? I mean, it's convicting to me, too. I got hours of that that I could spare, right? And so we, a group of us, got together on Tuesday, kind of gathered around a fire. And we're talking about this book uh, about the Lord's Prayer. And it's early church fathers. It's real nerdy. It's wonderful. And one of the early church fathers that we're, we're learning about is uh, an African theologian named Origen. And he lived in the third century. And he said this about being refreshed by God in his word. Listen to this. When anyone who is accompanied by the Holy Spirit calls upon the Lord, God sends thunder from the heavens and rain to irrigate the soul. You want your soul irrigated? I mean, don't we feel this right now? It's like August, and it's like insanely dry and hot. Let me start over. When anyone who is accompanied by the Holy Spirit calls upon the Lord, God sends thunder from heaven to, and rain to irrigate the soul. When the heavens were closed to Israel for three and, and a half years, Elijah opened them with the divine word. This may be achieved at any time by anyone who, having been drought-stricken through sin, through prayer, receives rain for the soul. Mm. Man, I would just say, are we trying to love and serve our spouse with a drought-stricken soul? It's no wonder it's not going well, right? Do you want rain for your drought-stricken soul? And the way we get is we turn from our sin, we turn from our distractions, which is probably one of our huge issues right now, turn from our distractions 
and we draw near to him. We, guys, we choose a a drought-stricken soul when we choose distractions of this world instead of dwelling in his presence. We have the time. We have the ability. We can do this. We can be fed. We can be nourished and cherished. Okay, so you got new new pattern, new power, and then I'm going to talk about new purpose, and this is going to be super quick. Don't worry. Super quick. Here we go. New purpose. What's our ultimate purpose in marriage? I think this is worth asking, and I don't think we ask it because we think about the moment. We don't think, we think day to day or year to year. But what's the ultimate purpose of your marriage? What are we doing all this for? Let me ask you a different way. At the end of your life, what will you have to show for your marriage? I'm a veterinarian. I've been a veterinarian for 20 years, and I'm a horse vet, so we go on the ranch and see people, and I get more, like I get to see their families. And so over 20 years, you see people like just starting off, and you see people just kind of, you know, starting to die off, and, you know, one spouse dies, and the other one's left, and you see this kind of cycle, and it makes me think, you know, it makes me think, because I know that I'm going to be at the end of it way earlier than I planned, Yeah, I think about that all the time. What will we have to show for our marriage in the end? What are you going to have to show for this? Put a lot of effort into it. What are you going to have to show for it? You have a bunch of stuff that your kids just take off to goodwill? You have a lot of garbage that they're just going to have to sort through? Like, what's left in the end? And I say that because I want you to feel the emptiness and meaninglessness of life without God. That's what it is. It's a bunch of stuff you collected being dropped off at goodwill. And goodwill doesn't really want it but half in the dumpster, okay? What do we have? Take a look at Ephesians 5 again. I want to show you what you have from your marriage. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Look at what Christ does with us, and this is going to be a picture of what we do in our marriage, okay? Who gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her with, by the washing of water with the word. And then what's this part? So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. What will you and your spouse have to show for your marriage? You will present each other to Christ when he returns. That's what you're going to have to show. What you're going to have to show for your marriage is you're going to show your spouse to God. You're going to have your spouse to show to God at the end. Presented, like it says, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, right? Holy, because God has made us holy, but God has used you as an instrument. Isn't that cool? Like you get to be an instrument of that work that God is doing. God's working on you every day. He's working through you every day to make your spouse more like Christ or less like Christ. That's what we have to show for it, right? God has given us, guys, the honor of being instruments in the sanctification of our spouse. You know, his amazing work of making us more like Jesus, he does that through us in in marriage. You get to be a part of that. Paul Tripp said it this way, marriage is not a container for your happiness, though it's happy, but a workroom for God's grace. Marriage is not a container for your happiness, but a workroom for God's grace. And a lot of times it feels a lot more like a workroom than a happy container, okay? And that's what it's for, all right? Um, Verse 27 says that when we... On that day when Christ returns, you're going to present your spouse to God as something that you were a part of his transforming work in. That's what we'll have to show for our marriage. Not a box of stuff dropped off at Goodwill. We'll have that on the final day. Paul said it this way, On the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, you will boast of me and I will boast of you. Isn't that cool? That's 2 Corinthians 1.14. On the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, you will boast of me and I will boast of you. It'd be like, this is, this is what my life was about. 
My life was about your glory through my ordinary family and, and my ordinary serving my spouse. The Lord's Supper, guys, looks forward to that day. Jesus said this. He said, I tell you the truth from now on. I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink it with you in the kingdom. So Jesus is saying at the Last Supper, he's saying, I'm not going to have another glass of wine until I have it with my bride. Isn't that cool? Until he has it with us. So he's, he's, he's waiting for that day for us. In the meantime, guys, he's given us the Lord's Supper as a way to nourish and cherish us. That we can feel nourished and cherished through these ordinary elements. But this bread and this cup are evidence of Jesus' love for us. We know when we look at the bread and we look at the cup, we know that Jesus cherishes us, right? And he cherishes us not because of our own goodness, but because of his goodness. On the cross, Jesus Christ, the ultimate husband, gave his body and his blood and died for the sins of his faithless bride. We are the faithless bride. You look in the Old Testament, you look at Israel and the way she's described that's us, right? And he died for us to nourish and cherish us. And as we take this bread and drink this cup, we remember that Christ is true food and his blood is true drink. Taking the bread and the cup are a way that he nourishes us and strengthens us so that we can be his faithful bride. This is a part of the way he feeds us. And so knowing that you're cherished by God, as you take this, take this as a gift of nourishment. And if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, we invite you to take this with us. If you're not trusting in Jesus, please talk to us first before you take it. But let's start with, with the bread. Hear now the voice of your Savior. He said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread. Father, when we think about your only son, your son, your only son, which you gave for us. And we think about him nailed to a cross, pierced, wounded for us. Lord, we, we know for a fact that our sin was thoroughly dealt with, that whatever conscience anyone in this room has about sins they've committed, but that they repented of, they're gone. You remember them no more. As far as the east is from the west, it's like being cast in the depth of the sea. You say you've thrown it behind your back. You remember it no more. Lord, help us to remember it no more. Lord, we thank you for the body of Jesus. Now I hear the voice of your Savior about the cup. He said this, This is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for your sin, Drink this in remembrance of me. Let's take the cup. Father, when we think about that blood shed and the power of that blood, the power of that blood to make us clean, totally clean. But you don't deal with us according to our transgressions. You said that though our sins are like scarlet, you've made them as white as snow. We thank you, Lord, that we are before you now as an unstained people because the blood of your son Jesus has made us so. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us through this time. We pray, Lord, for all the marriages that are here. Lord, we pray for anyone that's struggling in marriage and, and needs help. We pray, Lord, that they would reach out. We pray, Lord, for those who are here who um, are unmarried but desire to be. Lord, we pray that you would even now give them a sense of the love that they have 
in your son Jesus, the ultimate husband, and his care. And, and that relationship matters way more than anything we'd get in this life. And we pray, Lord, that you'd strengthen them, that you'd give them encouragement, that you would um, give them joy in you. We pray, Lord, for those whose uh, marriages have ended for a variety of reasons, Lord. And um, we pray, Lord, that you would be ministering to their hearts, that you give them wisdom, that you give them joy, that you would give them uh, just a deep trust in your sovereignty. And Lord, help us all to have the long view that this life is short and that eternity is forever and it's with you and it's enjoying you. Father, give us a taste of that joy now as we worship you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.